1: Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Joshua.
0: The God,
1: God had given the Israelites many victories as they went about conquering the land of Canaan, the land of promise. They defeated the walled cities of Jericho and Ai, saw the sun stand still and flaming hail fall from the sky as they defeated five of the Amorite kings with their armies. Israel also saw victory over the remaining northern Canaanites with their chariots that had banded together against the Israelites. There was also victory over the giants in the land. Now they have been distributing the land to the tribes for the people to lay hold of the rest of God's promises, Judah, Manasseh, and Ephraim all received their land. We see the remainder of the land divided among the tribes as we join Pastor Will in Joshua chapter 18, verse 1.
0: My kids were seeing me polish up my notes this afternoon. and What are you doing maps for? (laughs) All interesting. I love maps. I love geography. I love all this type of stuff. Obviously, when you're reading through it, maybe on your own time, it's not the most exciting thing, because if you don't have a map in front of you, or if you don't understand the significance of some of these places, it can be a little challenging. It's just a lot of foreign names and stuff, but it's part of God's Word, and I trust tonight that the Lord will bless us as we open it up. But by this point in time in the book of Joshua, two and a half tribes have land on the other side, Jordan. We see that there in the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and then eastern Manasseh, half-tribe of Manasseh. Judah, Ephraim, and the other half of Manasseh have been given land on this side. So you have Judah has all this land right now. This is part of Judah as well. And then you have Ephraim and Manasseh. So that leaves now seven tribes that still need land. But you know, it's interesting, even though the land is there and it's for the taking, people have a funny way of not claiming their possessions. It's interesting. You'll find out that you've got like a redeemable something somewhere and we don't tend to run out right away and go get it. Maybe you do and, and that's that's what you probably should do. But sometimes we let things linger and actually let them go aside. A lot of times the reason that companies offer these redemption coupons where if you purchase it it's got a fifty dollar off that you send in and they give it back to you is because half the people don't remember to send them in. The idea here is that People have a funny way of not claiming their possessions. And maybe you've done that before. Maybe you've been given a gift or something like that, but there's never a convenient time to go get it, or you're just slacking on claiming it. Well, these seven tribes end up doing that with their land, their inheritance. And so let's not make the same mistake, but lay full claim to all that God has given to us in Christ. So chapter... 18 of Joshua. It says, in the whole congregation, verse 1, The whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh. And they set up the tabernacle of the congregation there, and the land was subdued before them. But there remained among the children of Israel seven tribes, which had not yet received their inheritance. And Joshua said unto the children of Israel, How long are you slack to go to possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers has given you? Joshua, at this point, they, they've been camping in Gilgal. They've been camping there. But now, since Ephraim and Judah and Manasseh to have their land, he decides to move the main camp to Shiloh. So the entire congregation. Now, it's not the entire 12 tribes, of course, at this point in time. This entire congregation or whole congregation here refers to the seven remaining tribes who haven't settled land yet. The warriors from the two and a half tribes on this side, because remember, not everybody came. And then the Levites, of course, who don't, aren't going to get any land. That group now assembles here at Shiloh instead of Gilgal, and Joshua sets up the tabernacle of the congregation there, the place of worship at Shiloh. Shiloh is about 30 miles north of Jerusalem, Shiloh, it's a fertile plain area, and it's one of the highest points in Israel. It's about 2,000 feet above sea level. And it becomes, at this point, the religious center of the nation after the conquest. In fact, the tabernacle will remain in Shiloh until David's time when things start moving around a little bit more. For the most part, it'll stay in Shiloh. It'll move around a couple other times, but for the most part, it'll stay in Shiloh. During the conquest, the tabernacle was deconstructed because Israel was always on the move. They had never reconstructed it when they came to Gilgal. And so with some of the tribes already struggling and complaining about their land, Joshua decided it was time to remind the nation that God was in their midst. That's what the Tabernacle represented. That God himself was in their midst, that his presence was there. We get here now to verse two, as he sets this up, there remained among the children of Israel, seven tribes which hadn't received their inheritance. And so Joshua says to them, how long are you slack to go to possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers has given you? Now the word "there slack. It's an interesting word. I usually think of a slacker as someone who just won't do anything, but that's not what this word means. This word means to limp to your destination because you don't want to get to your destination. Like, have you ever done that? Like, and my kids did that sometimes Or you'd be like, okay, w- we're gonna go to the Carousel of Progress. I like that because it's a good chill-out time, right? And my kids do now, but sometimes you'd be like, ah, oh, i want to go on the bus, light, you ride again. And so, of course, they're dragging their feet. That's kind of what this word means. It's not that you're not moving, it's just you're not in any hurry to get to your destination because you don't actually want to get to your destination. See, after seeing the challenges that faced the first few tribes, apparently no other tribe was eager to step up and get the next lot. They were to content to live in their tents like they had for 40 years in the desert. We can look at that and laugh or pull out our hair and go, what is wrong with you people? How many of us limp to church or limp to read our Bibles or to share our faith because we're not excited about doing so? I've always said that the Bible is a unique book because it's the only book that you argue with. Seriously. Like nobody buys a book and then sets it down somewhere and then has a staring contest with it. Nobody does that with other books. You don't look at it and go, I don't know if I want to read you today. But it's funny how we get with the Bible. It begins to call to us. The Lord by his spirit begins to call to us. And hey, we think, oh, later. I, I need my you know, Facebook update right now. Or later, I need to find out what's going on in the world. Or later, I need to listen to the show. Or later, I need my coffee, whatever it might be. It's the only book that we argue with. I wish I could say that every time I, I go to have my devotion time that I'm just all, yippee, ready to go. I wish I could say that that was the excitement I approached. Now, lots of times it is because I'm like, man, I need the Lord today. But it's not every time. Not every time. Not every time coming to church. It's not every time sharing my faith. You know, there'll be times I'm I'm exhausted, whatever, I go to get gas and you know I, I go inside to pay and, and, and the Lord's like, I want you to tell this person about Jesus. And I'm like, I don't want to tell them about Jesus. I'm gonna be stuck in traffic as long as it is. I wanna get home, I wanna eat, I'm hungry. Hey, I get it. It's easy to look at these folks and go, What are you doing? But the reality is is we all can get like this sometimes. It's easy to critique these guys, but we must never forget that Joshua didn't write his book for them. He wrote it for those who would come after them, for you, for me. That's who this is for. So the lesson is not necessarily to look at them and go, how could they? But it's to look at me and go, where am I at with this? Now, Joshua poses a question when no answer comes to Joshua's challenge. He assigns him a task to get the ball rolling. And so in verse four, it says, He says to them, give out from among you, which means choose from among you three men from each tribe. So 21 men total, three from each of these seven tribes, and I will send them. And so they're going to get up and they're going to go through the land and they're going to describe it according to the inheritance of them. That's a funky way of saying, basically, they're going to basically describe it back to me in seven portions. Joshua is actually not going to set up what this little area is here and this area here, this area here. This is what these 21 guys are going to do. They're going to separate the remaining chunks of land into seven portions and then bring that report back to Joshua. So he says, and they shall divide it, verse 5, and they shall come again to me. Verse 5, they shall divide it into seven parts. Judah shall remain right where they are. They keep their lot. And the house of Joseph, which would be Manasseh, and Ephraim. So they already have their land. They're going to stay where they are. They're going to abide in their borders, their territory in the north. But you shall therefore describe the land into seven parts, separate into seven chunks, and bring that description to me that I may then cast lots for you here before the Lord your God. Again, their job is to bring back seven agreed upon chunks of land that Joshua will then put all the names in the hat and match them with a the tribe. Again, seven because the two and a half tribes soldiers from the eastern side They've already got land, you know, and then the Levites don't get a portion of land like the other tribes. Verse 7 explains that. But the Levites, they have no part, no share of the plunder, no no uh, inheritance in land among you. Why? For the priesthood of the Lord is their inheritance. And Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they've already received their inheritance on the other side, beyond Jordan. On the other side of Jordan on the east, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave to them. The Levites don't get any land because serving God was their inheritance. That was their home, serving in the tabernacle, ministering to the people, teaching them God's word. That was their inheritance. Joshua keeps saying this over and over again. The two and a half tribes have their land and the priests, you know, they already have their inheritance in the Lord. And the reason that he keeps reiterating it about the priests is for two reasons. Number one, so that none of the other tribes would ever get jealous. This was a big problem in Moses' time when they were still in the desert, because when they were still in the desert, the Levites were the only one to get an inheritance, right? Everyone else was waiting to get here. But the Levites, they were already serving the Lord. They were already ministering the tabernacle, teaching the people God's law. They were already doing it. They were already in their inheritance. So people got jealous at times. He reminds them, hey, they're not getting any land. But the second reason is not for the rest of the people. It's for the Levites themselves so that they would remember their special role. Now, that's interesting because the Bible in the New Testament calls Christians, calls the church, calls us kingdom of priests unto our God. So you and I are all priests unto the Lord. The role of a priest is to go on the people's behalf before God and then to go on God's behalf before people. And we must never forget that special role that God has given to us, to go before him on behalf of people and to go before people on the behalf of God, to share God's word with them and to bring them to the Lord in prayer. That is every single Christian's calling, and we must take that honor seriously. We must not get sidetracked under the things because this is our inheritance. I'm not saying you don't ask God to bless your business or your occupation or or your family or your your house and your property. I'm I'm not saying that. But our primary focus, our primary role is to remember that we are a kingdom of priests, and that is what we are to be focused on. That's our inheritance. The reality is, if, if I never get the promotion, or if, if I never get to move out of the socioeconomic sphere I'm in, I have an inheritance in front of me. Even if I don't ever experience those things, I have an inheritance right in front of me, because God has called me as his son, as his daughter, to go to people on his behalf and to bring them to him. It's an awesome privilege. Now, Joshua also reiterates that the two and a half tribes are to receive their land so that their soldiers don't get bitter when they're left out of these lots. They were here to fight for those who didn't have land yet, not to get extras. And I bring this up because there are many who they won't serve or they won't help someone out unless there's something in it for them. Let that never be said of anyone here. You know, that will only serve when something's in it for me. You know, let's be servants, not those who help others simply to get something extra from God. Well, they go, verse 8, And the men arose, and they went away, and as they're going, Joshua charged them that went to describe the land, saying, Go and walk through the land, and describe it, and come again to me, that I may here cast lots for you before the Lord in Shiloh. Where they're charged, it means to state something with force and authority that they must do. In other words, he says, I don't want any plotting, I don't want any backroom deals. Give me honest and fair portions that will bless every tribe, not just yours no shenanigans. And that's exactly what they did. So the men went and they passed through the land and they described it by cities into seven parts in a book. And they came again to Joshua to the host at Shiloh. There Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord. And that's how they figured out who would get what land. So Joshua divided the land under the children of Israel according to their divisions casting of lots, again, we don't know exactly how they did it. The rabbis say that they had two bowls and one bowl had the names of the tribes in it and the other bowl had the names of these portions of land. And he just picked one out of each bowl and matched it up and said, there you go, next. That's what they they say. I don't know how it worked. But I can tell you this, when Joshua said it was before the Lord, it means it wasn't random at all. It means that God is the one who influenced what was picked out. I bring that up because while that was the way they did things here, that's not the biblical command of the New Testament about how we discern the Lord's will. all right That's not how we're supposed to figure out what God wants us to do. We are not a nation with a physical land that we live in. This doesn't apply to us in that sense. And secondly, in the New Testament, after Jesus what He did on the cross, there's no wall between us and God anymore. The veil has been torn, and we can go right into the Holy of Holies to receive all the direction we need, specifically from God. His word is complete, we can go right to it to receive all the direction that we need from God. We don't need to cast lots. I dare say the only time in the New Testament we see people casting lots, it doesn't seem to be of the Lord. It seems to be something that they try to do in their own energies. So we certainly don't try to emulate that in our own decision-making process. If only our board meetings were that simple, they'd probably be a lot shorter, church board meetings and leadership meetings. But uh, no, we need to seek the Lord through prayer and his word, and then we discern his will by hearing his voice. Joshua did this for all seven tribes so that there'd be no more limping around. So whose name is drawn first? Well, verse 11 says it was Benjamin. And the lot of the tribe of Benjamin came up according to their families. And the coast or the borders of their lot came forth. The word there means to extend from one spot to another. It extended between the children of Judah and the children of Joseph. Benjamin's lot's drawn first. And we start in verse 12 with their northern border. It says, and their border on the north side, and the border on the north side was from Jordan. So we start with the Jordan River, and it says their border on the north side was from the Jordan, and that border went up to the side of Jericho on the north side, and it went up through the mountains westward, and the goings out thereof were at the wilderness of Beth Avon. And the border went over from thence toward Luz to the side of Luz, which is Bethel. Luz was the original name of Bethel, but Jacob gave the name of Luz to Bethel because the word Bethel means house of God. Remember, he had that dream where he was sleeping on the rocks, and he said, Oh, God's here. And so he named it Bethel, and that's the, been the name of it for Israel ever since. Southward and the border descended to Ataroth Adar near the hill that lies on the south side of the nether Beth Horon. Beth Horon. was a spring, so the bottom of the spring is what he's saying. All that I read just there basically is describing this entire northern top of their lands. We go from left all the way down there to Beth Horon, the nether. So it's just telling you what that northern border is that curves like that. So we move west to Jericho, Bethel, and then Beth Horon. Verse 14, we get to their western border, which is just that little small clip right here. It says here, the border was drawn thence. King James says, and compassed the corner of the sea southward. That's a mouthful. The phrase there, the border was drawn, it means it changed direction. It stopped going west and we start going south. Stopped going west and we start going south. And it compassed, it turned the corner Of the sea southward. The phrase corn of the sea should be translated edge of the west. They might be saying, How does edge of the west get mistaken for corner of the sea? Well, the word sea in ancient Hebrew, ancient Hebrew is much less precise than New Testament Greek, Koine Greek. People say, oh, that's just your interpretation. You can never say that about Greek. Greek is so specific. There's no interpretation that that is involved, okay? Old Testament Hebrew, though, is a little bit different, okay? So the same word for sea in ancient Hebrew is also west. Obviously, if you look in this region here, do you see any bodies of water? So clearly, a context of spatial measurements he's been giving us north, south, east, and west, and the fact there's no body of water there means that it should be translated west. Why the King James translators said, see, I have no clue. I bring this up and you go, well, that's kind of a big difference, Pastor Will. Critics of Christianity will say often, how can we know what the Bible means when its ancient languages are so vague? First off, Greek isn't vague, so it's just Hebrew. And I would argue to that comment that you can understand what Hebrew is saying, even though this one word has two very different meanings, the same way you would know that I don't believe the earth is flat when I say our armed forces are in the four corners of the world. Now, when I say our armed forces are in the four corners of the world, I mean they're everywhere, right? That's not a declaration of me being a flat earther, right? No offense if you are. Everyone would think, oh, it means they're everywhere. You wouldn't think that. context would determine what I'm talking about. So while some Hebrew words have multiple meanings, like for example, the word for prophet can also mean cow, appropriate. But clearly though, if it says, and the word of the Lord came to the, I think the word is not Navani or something like that. The translation should not be cow, right? Right, unless it's like Balaam's donkey. Clearly, you're going to translate that prophet. Context is key. So while some Hebrew words do have multiple meanings that are different, it's not complicated to determine which meaning should be used when we look at the context. The meaning for Bible translators is never vague or up for grabs. Bible translators are not just taking a guess for us. They are looking at this and they're saying, hey, yeah, this can mean sea or west, these guys clearly in 1400 or 1500, whatever, when the original King James was written, apparently didn't have any good maps and didn't realize there was no body of water there. However, newer translations don't say sea, they say west because they understand that's how it should be defined there. These critics who make that argument, which I see them making it more and more these days. Even people who claim to be Christians but say we can't trust the Bible. And they'll say, well, Hebrew words, you can't even understand Hebrew, it's so vague. That is nonsense. How did people talk back then if no one could understand it? Honestly. I mean, they they say things that you hear them, and and, and this is my point, these critics use foolish arguments that sound intellectual because they know just enough more than you to sound smart. They know just enough more than you to sound smart. And I hear Christians and they go, oh, I guess I can't trust my Bible. Hold the phone for a minute. Just because someone acts smart and knows a little bit more than you doesn't mean they're right. Listen, I've been doing this for almost 25 years, so there's not a whole lot of curveballs that catch me. But every once in a while, I run into somebody who's smarter than I am, somebody who knows more about a topic than I do that concerns biblical matters. And sometimes I don't know how to answer that. But here's what I've discovered. Just because I don't know how to answer it in that moment doesn't mean they're right. And more often than not, when I go and do some research, I'm like, what are they feeding me? That's not even a good argument. I remember someone sent me a link to a website, 108 contradictions in the Bible. And I have to confess, okay, it's not that it doesn't happen. I just don't get stumped too often. And I've, I've had so many arguments. People brought so many of their arguments to me. It's like nothing's new. So I was kind of excited when I got this email because I thought, oh, man, I'm, I'm going to have to actually dig in and, and really do this. I was angry after I started reading. I'm like, these are dumb. I'm like, a five-year-old could do studying and realize that these aren't contradictions. I thought, this is a waste of my time. And it was like, I'm, it was a link from a major atheist website. I just thought to myself, you could, I could come up with a better list than you. <laughs> just because someone sounds intellectual or even that they know a little bit more than you or even a lot more, it doesn't make them right. It simply makes them dangerous in their ability to deceive You know, the Bible says, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. I have had people come to me and challenge me and say, Pastor Will, you know, you said this today, and I don't don't think you're right. And here's why, and they've shared scripture. I tell you, no one ever likes being wrong, but I would rather, I'd rather let the Lord deal with me than argue my rightness if I'm wrong. And I've been so glad for the people that God has sent to me to say, Pastor Will, I really think you need to do some more research on this. And praise the Lord, I'm growing too. I don't want to be deceiving anybody. I don't want to be making mistakes. Knowledge is a powerful thing, but man, if it's everything to you, then it will puff you up to the place where you'll be blind to what's really in front of you, to the information that's there that you need to see. The border was drawn from there, turned from there, and compass turned westward, moving south. So again, we're just covering this little tiny strip of land. From the hill that lies in front of Beth Horon, southward. So we're moving down. And the goings out thereof, or the, the ends of it, the goings out thereof were at Kirjath Baal, which is Kirjath-Jerim, a city of the children of Judah. This was the west corner. It says quarter in the King James, but it means edge or corner. So Kirjath-Jerim is a city in Judah right in that corner there. And that's where the west border ends. Verse 15, we begin now to the southern border that lines with Judah there. And the south quarter, border, edge, corner, was... It says, from the end of kirjath the border went out on the west, and it went out to the well of waters of Nephtoah. It extended to, like you went to kirjath you'd have to go a little bit further west to get to their border. And their border was this spring, this well, it says in King James, but the spring of waters at Nephtoah. So apparently Judah got the city of Kirjath-Jerim, but the Benjamites, they got this important water source. So everybody was happy. And it says that, verse 16, the border came down to the end of the mountain that lies before the valley of the son of Hinnom. So now we're getting close to Jerusalem. That valley of the son of Hinnom is just on the western side of Jerusalem. And if you go to Israel, you'll see the three valleys with us when we go. You'll see the three valleys that are there in around Jerusalem. And we'll point out this valley of the son of Hinnom, which is in the valley of the giants in the north. And it descends to the valley of Hinnom to the side of Jebusi on the south. And it descended to Enrogel. Now Jebusi is Jerusalem's ancient name, either Jebus or Jebusi. And again, one of the coolest parts of going to Israel is they've done excavations and they've discovered the ancient city of Jebus before David conquered it. And so you go in there, and I mean, you're way below. You're down there, and they have to light it up with all these blue lights and everything. And it, you're seeing the blocks of of the city that form that ancient city of Jebus that's referred to right here. It's really cool. Verse 17. And then it was drawn from the north. So now we're going to change direction. So it turns up from the north and it went from Enshemesh and it went forth toward Geliloth, which is over against the going up. It means it's right next to the shoulder of the Judean hillside there. So as you move Further down into this area of Adunim, you enter into that Judean wilderness, the desert, and it, it's just all these rolling hills. And so their border is right up against, there's a like a road that goes right down through there. there. Basically, the road was the border. South of that was Judah, north of it was Benjamin. Descended up to the stone of Bohan, the son of Reuben. We don't know what that is, but apparently they did. Verse 18, and it passed along toward the side over against Ereba, northward, and it went down unto Ereba. So Ereba is just a word for desert. And when you you get down here it's all arid when you get down into the jordan valley at that point uh, by the dead sea i mean it's all brown it's very deserty you won't see hardly any green down there at all
1: the tribes were all receiving their inheritances the land that god promised them for years the only thing that would hinder them from claiming all that god had offered was their own lack of faith or apathy we can often miss out on all that god has because we begin to slow down drift off into spiritual apathy, or allow our feelings of fear and doubt dictate to us life circumstances. But God is always with us, and He gives us victory when we take His Word mixed with faith and walk in obedience to do all that He has commanded. He loves us and longs to bless us. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at four zero seven five two three zero eight zero zero during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app available on itunes and google play thank you for joining us today we will see you next time as we continue to learn walk and live in the word